Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. You know, each week here at the podcast, I'm working to crowdsource and share advice and perspective that you can put to use to help you not only grow your career, but also help you build influence for yourself in the process. Over the past few weeks, I've been sharing a special collaboration series featuring women founders and entrepreneurs who were part of an amazing organization called the Southern Cootery. The Southern Sea and I have been sharing this series as a collaboration because it supports both their mission and mine, essentially to encourage and empower women both personally and professionally and to do so by sharing stories and best practices and advice and also building network connections that ultimately can result in incredible collaborations. Now, the Southern Sea is a place where founders and would-be founders can connect and collaborate and really support each other in building great companies and businesses and in creating opportunities for others. You'll find a link in the show notes for this week's episode if you'd like to learn more. And I encourage you to do so because this is a terrific organization. I am really grateful to be a member and to have a chance to partner with them on this series and to share it with you. So I'm really happy about that and I hope you'll check it out. As I have thought about this year's collaboration with the Southern Sea, I've also been thinking about one of my favorite stories of entrepreneurship and really just chutzpah of finding a niche and identifying that problem and setting about to solve it, but doing it in a way that for the entrepreneur we'll talk about today, created not only tremendous wealth for her, but whose efforts created tremendous opportunities for thousands of other women, indeed thousands of other people. This woman was one of the first women millionaires in the U.S., and the first African-American female millionaire. I'm talking, of course, about Madam C.J. Walker, who in the early 1900s was inspired to create products for African-American women when few such products were available. With tremendous hard work and a very supportive community of women, she propelled herself literally from washerwoman to entrepreneur and she did it using so many of the levers of influence that we talk about on this very podcast. 
Now this week, as we close out Women's History Month, I'm sharing an encore bonus episode with Madam Walker's great-great-granddaughter, the amazing Alelia Bundles. Alelia is an award-winning journalist and historian who is also the official keeper of her family's history. She is so lovely and so fantastic. In this episode, you'll hear about how Madam Walker's service mindset helped her build a strong customer base, how she used direct marketing to create a connection with her customer, how she drew confidence from a close network of women, how she turned the investment she made in herself into investments in others in a myriad of ways. But friend, another important dimension of this episode that I especially love is Alelia's own perspective on Madam Walker's legacy. I think you'll get a lot of inspiration from this conversation, but as always, be sure to let me know what you thought and what resonated most with you once you've had a chance to listen. I would love to hear. For now, here's this week's Encore bonus episode in honor of Women's History Month and the tremendous legacy of Madam C.J. Walker, my conversation with her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. Alelia, welcome to She Said, She Said. Delighted to be here. (laughs) I am absolutely delighted to have you. Um, I'd be delighted to have you under any circumstances, but I'm especially delighted to have you this month during Women's History Month to talk about your amazing family history. Before we get into that, you are incredibly accomplished in your own right. So I would love for you to start off by telling us just a little bit about yourself. So I was born in Chicago, and but I grew up in Indianapolis, which is where both of my parents were from. I uh, had a really wonderful childhood with lots of opportunities and discovered that I loved writing at a very early age. And that then sent me on a path to a career that led to um, you know, the school newspapers and then working at NBC and ABC and now having written four books and then just a lot of other wonderful doors that opened up for me. Yeah. This may sound like a strange question when people hear this, but when did you first become aware of your family history? You have this amazing family history, but was it always something that was ever present? Did you really sort of understand it when you were a child growing up? I began to discover Madam Walker and Alelia Walker and my grandmother May, you know, long before I really knew who they were because their belongings were in the bedroom of my grandmother's apartment. My grandmother had died in 1945 when my mother was a freshman at Howard. But when my mother and I would visit her father in that apartment, I would go to my grandmother's room and open up drawers and find ostrich feather fans and treasures, no, opera glasses and things that had belonged to them. And then my mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. So I would go with her to her office. And the silverware that we used every day had Madam Walker's monogram on it. And our special china had been her china. So I had a sense of these were my grandmothers. Um, but it was really much later that I began to understand just you know how significant they were in terms of their historical uh, value and importance. Yeah. A big part of your life has been spent on protecting and preserving and telling that story and that your your history and your legacy. Maybe talk about 
when that moment first occurred to you that this was something that you wanted to devote a big part of your life to? If you had told me when I uh, went to college at 18 years old that I would be spending uh, most of my waking hours writing and talking about these great, amazing women, I would have thought there's just no way. My mother and father encouraged me to follow my dreams. I wanted to be a writer. I pursued a career in journalism versus working in what essentially was the family business. Both of my parents worked in the hair care business. But when I was at Columbia in journalism school and graduate school, my advisor was a woman named Phyllis Garland, a black woman journalist, first only black woman on the faculty, first black woman on the faculty at the journalism school. And she recognized my name, Alelia, with mm-hmm. an unusual spelling. And I think she knew the answer to this question, but she said, do you have any connection to Madam Walker and Alelia Walker? And I said, yes, that's my family. And she said, that's what you're going to write your master's paper about. <laughs> but that was, you know, the fall of 1975. There were no people knocking on my door saying, we need this book. We need a story about these women. There were very few books being published uh, about or by African-American women. So it was really Phil who validated this for me. Yeah. It's it's so interesting to me that 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 it was such a surprise to you that this is where you've spent your time because these stories are incredible, right? They are part of not only your tapestry but our our country's tapestry. Um why was it such a surprise to you? Why well, do you think it hadn't occurred to you before? Because during that period of time, the stories of women and people of color were really not taught. They were considered insignificant. And one can say inadvertent, (laughs) if you are really thinking about the way history is taught and how our history has been written, it was intentional that uh, to undervalue the stories of people of color, to undervalue the stories of women and African-Americans. And so this was certainly not taught in my history books. And yeah. it was it really took, I think, the civil rights movement and the women's movement to put these stories in the forefront. Yeah, yeah. Let's back up a bit and talk about Madam Walker's extraordinary story and talk about how she got her start. So Madam C.J. Walker was born Sarah Breed Love on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. Born in December 1867, uh, the same um, to, to the first child in her family to be born into freedom. But orphaned at seven, uh, moved in with an older sister. Her brother-in-law was so cruel to her, she said she got married at 14 to get a home of her own, a mother at 17, uh, and a widow at 20. But she moved up the river from um, Louisiana to St. Louis, where her older brothers had moved a decade earlier. And it was the women of the church, St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church, who began to mentor her and began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. Take me from washerwoman to international entrepreneur. I mean, just the the bridge and and recognizing at this point in time for any any woman, much less a woman of color, right? That is a huge bridge to go from somebody who was literally taking in other people's laundry to becoming a, a millionaire, a female millionaire. T- it totally. When you think this is late um, 1800s, early 1900s, before women had the right to vote. 
90% of African-Americans still lived in the South, mostly in the rural South, working as sharecroppers are the only jobs that uh, Black women could get for the most part, with the exception of a few school teachers, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was as maids and, and laundresses and cooks. But this was a person who had seen some glimmer of hope from the, uh, the small group of educated African-American women uh, like Ida B. Wells, like Mary McLeod Bethune, like Mary Church Terrell, um, who had created an organization called the National Association of Colored Women, a national women's organization interested in suffrage, just as their white counterparts were, but also interested in social uplift in creating kindergartens and um, retirement homes. But those were women in her church. And so she could see there was a path it looked impossible for someone like Sarah Breedlove, the washerwoman. But as she moved through her journey, she her hair began to fall out and right. she needed to figure out a, a solution. She needed to figure out a remedy. And it was the discovery of that hair care product that then allowed her to create a company and then to employ thousands of women. And, and this was the condition that she had was something that was very common to many African-American women at the time. Is that right? And, you know, it was actually really common to everybody. Um, it was at a time when most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing. People didn't bathe very often. Right. And they washed their hair even less often. So they had really horrible dandruff and scalp diseases. So actually there were products, white women were using, buying shampoos. Um, Cuticure was a product that was very commonly used um, by white customers, but it was something that healed dandruff, healed scalp infections. But in particular with African-American women, because our hair is more tightly coiled, then it was much harder to open the scalp up and to let the scalp breathe. And so, so, so our condition seemed in many ways to be worse. And then people were working in rural areas. They were having to cover their heads uh, with cloth. And so the infections were just really severe. So she was, it was at a time when there were very few commercially available products for women. Cosmetics industry was still just being born. But this was something that she and a few others before her um, had begun to create these, you know, really sort of home remedies that they then turned into uh, commercial businesses. I love the idea of product development, but what I love even more is the fact that she began to recognize or or saw the opportunity to really empower other women as part of her sales force. Maybe talk a little bit about that. She was like. Mary Kay before there was even such a thing, right? I mean, people weren't really doing that at the time, certainly not women. No, certainly not women. And really, you think about people like Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein, they were her contemporaries. As they were starting skincare products and then some makeup for women, that was an entirely new industry. And this idea of women being in business and creating a product that was focused on women, you were just supposed to do that at home. You know, you were supposed to take care of your needs within your family, but to be able to create something that was commercially available was quite unusual. And I think that because she had been mentored and in some ways empowered by those women of the church, once she started selling her products and once she started recruiting agents, she saw that, yes, those women, the the customers and the sales agents needed a remedy for the scalp infection, but what they really needed was education 
uh, and economic independence. And so this then became in the same way that Mary Kay uh, allowed women, helped women have their own income, Madam Walker was doing the same thing. Yeah, that's amazing. It's such an amazing story. When you began to dig into this story, what were the elements that surprised you the most? Because you knew the story growing up, but what surprised you as you really began to dig in and do the research about her? What what were her true secrets of success, if you will? You're right. I knew the story, but in some ways, I kind of knew the story that most people who had heard of Madam Walker knew. She made hair care products. She became a millionaire. She was born on a plantation. She died in a mansion. You know, so that's kind of a nice four squares of a story. (laughs) But when I started really doing the research with the benefit of the incredible black newspapers of the time that at that point were on microfilm, now they're digitized. But then I would have to go to Chicago or New York or Los Angeles to actually sit down in a library and scroll through and hope that I found some information. But as I began to do the detailed research, I began to discover just how much more multidimensional she was. Yes, she made hair care products, but she really did build a national and international business. Thousands of women became her sales agents. Those women created generational wealth for their families. Once she began to make money, she was a patron of the arts who commissioned uh, paintings by prominent Black artists. She always had live entertainment for her parties from some of the most prominent musicians of the day. And then she became a a philanthropist giving money to Black schools and colleges and orphanages and a political activist who was very supportive of the anti-lynching movement. Yeah. When you look back on those lessons, which are the ones that resonate with you most deeply? Her philanthropy and her political activism. I mean, yes, creating, creating a business employing thousands of people. That is amazing. amazing. Uh, And I know that many people will, you know, say, oh, isn't Madam Walker the first American self-made woman millionaire? And that, you know, that's what many people believe. That's what the Guinness Book of World Records says. But for me, that's kind of an interesting footnote, but it's what she did with her money. That really is the most important thing to me. So that she was giving back to her community. She was making sure people were educated, but also that she had the courage to be politically active, um, that she, in some ways, uh, she and her friend Ida B. Wells were politically militant. This worried her attorney who said, you know, you need to be very careful about what you say. The government is watching you. Um, They're going to circumscribe your activities. In fact, they did. They denied her a passport. But she was uh, fearless about this and and felt that she could speak out on lynching, that she could speak out on the poor treatment that Black soldiers were getting uh, during World War One. She was not afraid because she knew that her wealth had been created by other African-Americans. And I think she was of the mind that if I can't speak out, then what is the point of this? Right. Right. Absolutely. 
So, Alelia, I wrote to you when my family and I started watching the Netflix series entitled Self Made, which is very loosely based on Madam C.J. Walker and on your amazing book entitled On Her Own Ground. I've said on this podcast several times and on our Instagram that folks need to read this book. It is absolutely terrific. It is a terrific, terrific history of Madam Walker and so much of what was happening in the world at the time. But back to the Netflix story, it varies dramatically from the truth. I want you to talk a little bit about that experience. You know, I think that anytime a book is translated, uh, you know, a nonfiction book, especially is translated to a Hollywood screen, there's a lot of creative license that's going to happen. And some things are a little better than others in terms of getting at the core of the truth. And in my case, the translation um, was really pretty stark. I love the fact that Octavia Spencer played the role of Madam Walker. I think every time she comes on screen, she lights it up and she you know, really embodies the tenacity and the courage yeah. and perseverance of Madam Walker. So for that, I'm, I'm grateful. And lots of people worked really hard to make this come forward and were very proud to work on it. But I was, um, I don't know, I guess disappointed is probably, you know, a, a nice way for me to say this, yeah. that um, that the showrunners and the writers decided that they would create a sort of catfight between two women, between Madam Walker and her competitor, and that that would be the centerpiece of the story in order to to heighten the drama. And I think I was very much thinking I was going to see hidden figures right. and it was what it was closer to a real housewives of Atlanta. At the same time, it was entertaining for people. A lot of people now know Madam Walker's name, but I'm also finding myself having to say what people say, did, you know, did this happen? Did that happen? So I'm having to correct the record because people do believe what they see, even though Hollywood creatives um, will say, well, everybody knows it isn't really true. But, you know, people don't really know what's true and what's not true. Right. Well, if you had to speculate on why the good people in Hollywood thought it necessary to really dramatize this conflict between Addie Monroe in the series, who was sort of loosely based on a competitor, as I understand it, whose name right. was Annie Malone. Right. Um, and there was this whole theme of colorism that runs through this conflict between these two women. But you say that really was not, it, it, it just was not part of the story. So why make it part of the story? Why can you speculate on why that would be a theme that folks would feel compelled? I mean, the, the story itself is so interesting and compelling. I'm a little lost. And when I watched the, the series, I was struck by those moments where it just didn't feel right to me. There were elements of the film that I was like, I, I have trouble reconciling this in my head, right? Why do you think they did that? Well, I think the uh, the writer, Nicole Jefferson, um, thought that this was a way to tell a story. I mean, she's not, she doesn't have a lot of Hollywood credits. And I think maybe she thought if you honed in on two women competing with each other, fighting with each other, that's kind of a cliched way to go at a story. And maybe she thought that would um, appeal to, I think she was trying very much to appeal to what she thought was a younger audience. And I think, you know, clearly colorism is an issue 
um, you know, not not just, you know, in America and in the black community. We've seen it recently with the interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry that, the, you know, color, skin color right. it has an impact on people's lives. So it's not that it's not, a, an, you know, something that's an important issue to grapple with but it really didn't exist between the two women. And so what it did was to create, to add an element when in fact, these women were both really successful businesswomen, really great philanthropists who had the same, had similar products as that were similar to other products that other people had, but they were the two Queens of beauty and their conflict was over how they did their business, not about color. And I, so I think that would have been quite Interesting, all on its own. But I agree. Not the centerpiece of the story. I mean, it really did stay the main um, relationship and the main conflict. And there's so many other things that could have been developed. Yeah, yeah. You took some heat for the fact that you decided to let people who watched the miniseries make up their own minds, as opposed to really talking much more forcefully <laughs> about the fact that you were very disappointed, heartbroken, really. I mean, you've spent all of this incredible time and all of these years working on this story. That's a heartbreaking thing to happen. Maybe talk about why you made that decision. So I knew that um, when when I I was being left out of the conversation. So when the script was being written, I was supposed to be included. I only agreed to the deal because I thought I was going to be included. And my previous options, I had been very much a part of it. But when uh, this particular writer became attached to the pro- to the product, to the process, um, we had a conversation and she said she was going to focus on these two women and the fight between the two women. And I said, thinking this is one of many conversations we'll have, well, I don't, you know, I probably wouldn't make that the centerpiece. I would include it, but not make it the centerpiece. And from that moment on until they had to show me the scripts, I was really left out of the conversation. So that's really, you know, kind of questionable about why that happened, but that is what happened. So ultimately um, I read the scripts. I raised issues. I wrote extensive notes. I said, why don't you think about this? Not about that. And so So I knew what was coming and I had really tried to warn them. When it came time for shooting, um, the showrunners and the head writer actually did not invite me. When I asked to come, they they looked at each other. We were on a Zoom call, uh, a Skype call, and it was like I'd thrown a bomb into the room. (laughs) So I I wasn't invited. And then ultimately... Um, two weeks before the filming was done, Octavia Spencer reached out to me and invited me to the set. And so I went to the set. I had a wonderful day. Demaine Davis was directing. Octavia Spencer and Blair Underwood and Kevin Carroll were incredible in the scenes they were in. The people behind the scenes, the costume people, the makeup people, the hair people were all really wonderful. I had a great day on the set. So I could see how hard people had worked on this. Right. And how proud they were. And I didn't want to rain on their parade before this aired. Yeah. So I, I, you know, and I'd worked in television long enough as an executive and as a producer that I knew that, you know, the politics of that moment were that I could have been, you know, just kind of uh, whiny and cranky beforehand. 
or I could let things unfold in the way they did. And then when I saw the reaction, yes, lots of people were totally entertained, but other people kind of saw through that. Mm-hmm. And I think I just, you know, sometimes you have to trust the universe. Yeah. Tell the truth that it needs to tell. Yeah, absolutely. How what what impact do you think your experience has on other prominent families who might be grappling with allowing Hollywood, Netflix, whatever, to t- help them tell their story? I think it is having an impact. I, I do have uh, you know a handful of friends who have famous ancestors, and I know a couple of them are in the process, even right now, negotiating contracts about how those family members are going to be treated in the scripts. And so they are very aware of the experience I had. And so they know which, what questions to ask. And then there are other people, there are other producers, other directors, other writers who have a you know, a much keener consciousness. Uh, this most recent um, series story about Fred Hampton, Fred Hampton's family was very involved. I heard the producer uh, and the Warner Brothers executive on a clubhouse call the other night <laughs> talking, about, talking about their experience. And, you know, they talked about making sure that the family was included. Now, they said there were moments when they wanted to do one thing and the family was uncomfortable with it. And they sort of figured out, you know, sometimes we're going to agree to disagree. That's fine. You know, right. you do, if, if a really a person is really talented in what they do in Hollywood, sometimes their ideas about how you tell the story and how you get to the emotion is going to be better than somebody who is only sort of there on the periphery. So I trust that process too. But I think ultimately it's what are your values and how invested are you in trying to get at the truth of the story, even if you have to, you know, do some creative license at some point. Is there anything you would do differently if you had to do it over again in terms of how you would negotiate those contracts? I mean, I'm not sure how much leverage you have in a situation like that, but are there things that you would do differently? And are you advising maybe other families yeah. to make sure they're <laughs> that they're um, recognizing the experience that you had? You know, all of these things are learning experiences. I right. had a couple of, of previous <laughs> times when I had contracts and, you know, it didn't, it was like, mm, I learned a lot of lessons and paid a lot of money to a lawyer for those <laughs> lessons. Uh, and I had learned those lessons, but these were some other lessons that I had to learn. I think this is true. No matter what you do in life, there are, you know, things you said, ah, wish I'd done that differently. Yeah. But certainly um, at that point I had been, there had been about a decade where there were so few movies being produced Uh, with African-American characters. Hollywood's conventional wisdom was, you know, these uh, projects don't sell overseas. We're not interested. And then there was the April rain hashtag Oscar so white and the success of 12 years a slave and the Butler. So now people were calling me again. And I talked with three or four different studios and I went with the producer who seemed to value my book, really loved my book and uh, wanted me involved. But then it got to the point once it started, once the contract, my contract was negotiated, but once Warner Brothers and Netflix became involved, I lost control um, because somebody else was was calling the shots. So yeah, I mean, I, I expect to do other projects and you know, I know that I will um, say that I wanna meet the writers. I wanna look at the writers. I, I'm, I'm working on something now where I am in, but where people have said to me, we will, we promise you 
you will not have that same experience. So <laughs> I think by speaking up, you know, I could have said nothing um, and just kind of gone along with the program. And I think that is sort of what some people wish that I had done and sort of, you know, just, just say thank you and just be glad that it got done. And that's the end of it. And you just have to deal with it in the same way that the Royal family told Meghan Markle that she needed to just go with the program. But I, you know, I'm, I'm at the stage in life where I don't just go with the program that, uh, you know, I'm, I um, feel it's important to, to speak your truth and, and not just to speak your truth about an ego thing, but to do it because, it's really important to me that these stories be told and that they be told well. And it's important to me because I know the young girls who are doing their reports on Madam Walker and who wanted to watch this program with their mothers. And then when their right. mothers saw it, they're like, eh, not really something that we can let you see. And, and so that was heartbreaking to me. And so I know that my goal is to tell a, a good story, to tell an inspiring story and a truthful story. Right. Right. One of the things that strikes me um, that I love about your story, Alelia, is and, and the writing that you've done about what happened with the Netflix folks and your reaction to it and how heartbroken you were, but how you reacted to it in a very thoughtful, um, dispassionate, um, direct way, not to be hurtful, but to be accurate. And the reasons why you felt that that historic integrity was so important. And we talked about this when you and I talked um, via email, you know, uh, before we before we met, where when you think about that, and recognizing that there's so much emotion involved when you have a disappointment and a setback like that, where did that agility to really pivot, really process this, to really think about that and not just react. Talk about where that came from for you. How did you learn to do that? I mean, this may sound like a strange question, no, but I think it's question. so important <laughs> because so much of the time it can be so easy to get so caught up in the emotion of something that means so much to you that you inevitably make a decision or react in a way that can be counterproductive? That I, Listen, that is a great question because I will tell you that there, it's not that I don't think bad words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> that makes you human. <laughs> oh, yes. In the, in the privacy of my, you know, my own home, there, there are thoughts that I have. But I think that I, I truly have learned through the years that you know, if you say the first thing that comes to your mind that you are going to shut down a conversation and you have to be intentional about your goals and, you know, what, how, what your um, tone is. You know, I, when I was actually, when I was going through this, I knew it had been a challenging year for me anyway, because in 2019, my father and both of my brothers died within 12 weeks of each other. Oh, so while I was reading these scripts, I was with my brother who had stage four lung cancer. My oh. dad had had been diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. So I, I mean, it was there was a lot, there was a oh. lot going on in my yeah. life. And I, you know, I do yoga and I meditate and I find ways to, you know, calm myself down. So by the time 
uh, within the few weeks before the Netflix series was was getting ready to air. I happened to run into a friend of mine who is a coach, uh, a sort of a life coach. And I was talking to her and she said, Let, let's do a couple of sessions. You know, so people appear when you need them to appear. Right. And we did. We had a few sessions and she said, here's, you know, if, if this is how this comes at you, think about this. Think about your tone. What is it that you want other people to take away from this? What is your goal? And that was extremely helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Because you were planning for that possibility in advance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's such good advice. It's such good advice. And you, and you know, you see, you see train wrecks. <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes, yes, you do. <laughs> train wrecks. And then, and, you know, and I, I learn so much every day from people. I've really, you know, I've been gone from my corporate life for a decade and a half. And I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy being a producer, being in the mix of news. I'm really glad I'm not doing that right now because this is a really insane time to be to be working in a newsroom. But I was really fortunate to have, you know, both some really bad bosses from whom I learned (laughs) some great lessons and some really good bosses, people who were who mentored me, who encouraged me, who gave me opportunities. And along the way, um, I think I learned how to handle stress and you know, difficult situations. I, I would also say being in the being working in the news and being in an editing room when you have six seconds to air and you can't fall apart was probably also really good training. Another element of this story that I know you're you are really in the throes of working on right now relates to your great grandmother, for whom you are named Alelia Walker, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, and the fact that she is often misunderstood as a character. I think both in the series, but but I think in in general, people would say um, there's maybe a less charitable view taken of her. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe talk a little bit about her. Sure. So just for a little perspective, when I started writing about Madam Walker and doing the research, basically what people knew about her was incorrect. I mean, she had a hair care company, she became a millionaire and people said, and she invented the hot comb. So, that, you know, but that wasn't true. That part right. wasn't true. So I had to untangle that and so it's taken me, you know, four decades of like, most people don't say that anymore. But I knew going into that, that there was a lot that I had to undo. There were myths about her. And I feel the same way about Alelia Walker. Her story is a very different story that she's been kind of pigeonholed as Madam Walker made the money. Alelia Walker had parties and spent all the money, you know, the end. Right. And of course, you know, no one is that pathetic, but. <laughs> But she and she is complicated, and that's what makes her so interesting to me. Um, she was very involved in the early days of building the business with her mother. It was her idea to move to Harlem. That I think is part of the reason that they're still remembered. Is that that decision to be in New York put them in center stage of what was going on in Black America? But she also was um, the child of a self-made person. It's, is you, we can look at any number of really famous wealthy families now and see how hard it is for that next generation. But in the process of her trying to find her own identity, she really did become a patron of the arts, um, with an amazing 
circle of friends, but even people who write about the Harlem Renaissance, it's, she's usually a paragraph that's repeated over and over again with, you know, she had parties and um, that she really didn't, she really wasn't much of a patron of the arts. But but my research, and it's a, an additional decade of research, um, shows just what an influence she was. Now, she was very different from her mother, so it's not going to be the same story. And there are parts of her that are not likable. So, I'm, you know, I'm including those two. But all in all, she was an original. I know that philanthropy was such a big part of Madam Walker's story and also Alelia's story. Um, and she really thought of her first duty, as you write it, write this in the book, as being focused on humanity. And she encouraged her sales agents to use their prosperity and influence to help others. I'm so struck by that because I think it was, she was so ahead of her time as it related to philanthropy. Definitely corporate responsibility. I mean, she having, I think very much influenced by growing up in the AME church, the African Methodist Episcopal church, with the women who were in the missionary society, with the women who the club women who were involved in suffrage and who were involved in social outreach, that she had that as a template for how you live your life. And so it just became, if she had a penny, then she would put it in the collection plate. So as she became more prosperous, her gifts multiplied, but she really did see this, um, see philanthropy as something that, that was important Eat, as she moved along the way, whether it was Christmas baskets or Christmas turkeys to people in the neighborhood in Indianapolis to this thousand dollar gift that she gave to the to the YMCA. You know, as I that that thousand dollar gift, when she shortly after she moved to Indianapolis, there was a big fundraising campaign for a black YMCA. The YMCAs were segregated at that point. She was good friends with the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, a black newspaper who also happened to be the chairman of the board of the black YMCA. So when there was this campaign to raise money, she gave a thousand dollars. And as many times as I've told that story and as significant as it is and all the dimensions that it represents, I don't know what that reason was, what made her stand up in that rally and say, I'm going to give $1,000. I don't know what she, what was going through her mind, but once she did it, it really set her on a different trajectory because people wanted to know her story. And then maybe that's the power of a personal story. How had this woman who had been a washwoman now gotten to the point where she could give $1,000? Was it just this sense of giving back of charity that she learned in the church did she also have this idea that she was a master at marketing and publicity that this would get headlines, but for the good of the community? But that, I mean, that's something I have. I mean, I have to meditate on that and see if I, <laughs> you know, and I think this is what's so, so fun and satisfying for me about telling their stories is that I continue to have revelations about them. Um yeah. And other people were, you know, I have a good friend, Tyrone McKinley Freeman, who's a professor of philanthropy at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. He's just written a new book called Madam Walker's Gospel of Giving. Oh, really? And Tyrone takes, you know, I met him when he was working on his dissertation a decade ago, and he has drilled down on Madam Walker as a philanthropist and as an educator. And he is a person who's, you know, who grew up in the church, is, I think, 
you know, at least a, his maybe his grandfather and another and a couple of other relatives are ministers. I think his father is a minister. So he he has a lens that I couldn't bring to my writing, and he really looks at the history of philanthropy among African Americans. But he really, you know, unpacks who Madam Walker was as a philanthropist within the context of that particular time of the early 1900s. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So given what you just said about uh, having these things revealed to you as you do more and more research and as you sit with it and as you meditate with it and you think about it, if you had an opportunity to sit down with Madam Walker and with Alelia Walker, What's the question you would ask each one of them? You've got to have things like that thousand, maybe it's that thousand dollar question. <laughs> you probably have loads of questions that you're like, wow, I wish she had written this down somewhere. What would be those two questions? What would you ask each one of them? You know, for, for Madam Walker, I would really like to know about her childhood, sort of what that period was from seven years old when her parents died through 20 when she made the decision to, after her husband died to move from Louisiana to, um, to St. Louis. I, I would just really love to know what the influences are. I can do the historical context and say, I know this was going on in Delta, Louisiana and, you know, try to um, speculate on that. But I would love to know what she thought about that period of her life and what the long-term influences were. With Alilia Walker, I, you know, I would just love for her to tell me about the, who was at the parties. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. I was lucky to, um, during the early 80s, I, there were still a few people who had known Madam Walker who were still alive and a, a larger number of people who had known Alilia Walker, and I was able to interview them. And some of the friends, a woman named Jerry Major, who had been the society columnist for the black newspapers and who later was the society columnist for Jet Magazine. Wow. She was, she had so many great stories to tell. Um, and, you know, and I interviewed a number, Alberta Hunter, the blues singer, I interviewed her and a, a number of other people, but they were so excited to see me because it reminded them of their friend and the good times they'd had together. Yeah, that's amazing. Because we are, in some, to some degree, setting the record straight as it relates to both of these stories, to leave our audience with maybe the most enduring elements of each woman's legacy that you want to make sure we don't lose as people work over these stories in whatever way they will. What are maybe the, the most enduring elements of both stories? For me, Madam Walker's story is a story of women empowering women. She was mentored and nurtured by women who took her under their wing, who saw some spark in this uneducated washerwoman and you know, began to help her see a way forward. And she then turned around and did that literally for thousands of other women and that the impact was multi-generational both with their the wealth that they created, the real estate they could buy, and also politically because the beauticians who had gone to her convention saw her commitment to politics so that even up until the 1963 March on Washington, it was the beauticians who helped pay for the buses to go to that march. Wow. So there was a long um, you know, legacy for Madam Walker. And now she 
you know, her story continues to inspire entrepreneurs and and business people and and little girls who are doing reports. So that's Madam Walker. With Alilia Walker, I um, her story for me is the story of trying to find your own identity um, with a larger than life parent, and that can be played out in many different ways. Your you know mother doesn't have to be a millionaire in order for you to have that struggle of who you are and what's important to you, but that ultimately she did find it. Um, and it was to be a patron of the arts, to uh, be, to enjoy culture. Um, as one of her friends, to, she enjoyed beauty. So she found some satisfaction in the cultural endeavors of others and in supporting them. And I think that's the mark that she left, that that she was able to, to bring together a wide range of people, European royalty, African royalty, people from downtown, people from uptown, the writers, musicians, artists, and actors of the Harlem Renaissance, who all enjoy being around this sort of charismatic, uh, vivacious woman. And that was her contribution to the Harlem Renaissance, was her convening ability and her uh, ability as an impresario to put together great events. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love this conversation. I am so grateful that you spent time with us today. This is really, really fantastic. Well, I'm so glad that you reached out. I mean, I really have enjoyed the podcast of yours that I've listened to. Thank you. Each topic is different and you managed to bring out the stories and, you know, I think to share with your audience, the, uh, um, there's so many amazing women. (laughs) There's so many amazing women who are doing incredible things. And, you know, you have a great uh, canvas to work with. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Friend, thanks so much for joining me for this special Encore bonus episode in honor of Women's History Month. I'd love to know which aspects of Madam Walker's story and of Alelia's resonated most with you. As always, you can share your feedback with me by emailing me here at info at she said dot media, or use the contact link on my website at she said she said podcast.com. You'll also find a link to contact me in the show notes for this episode. And remember, there's also a link where you can find out more about the Southern Sea. Until next week, you take care and I'll talk to you again soon. She Said, She Said podcast is a weekly production of She Said, She Said Media.